This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Labels Podcast. I am your host, Rosanna Gill, and I am so glad that you're here. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if it's If it is not your first time listening, then welcome back. So today's episode is a little bit different um, than the typical format. Uh, It did not start out that way. I started or intended for this conversation to be like any other where the person and I would have a conversation about their their labels that they had broken and the journey and all that went with it. But I got to be honest, I fangirled a little bit and I got nervous. And so uh, the interview, which you probably already know by now, is with Elizabeth Benton. And she wrote this amazing book called Chasing Cupcakes. And when I read the, I think it's called the subtitle, that I think that's what that's called to you. I mean, it's called How One Broke Fat Girl Transformed Her Life and How You Can Too. Well. Needless to say, I was hooked and had to read the book. So first I listened to it and then I realized, oh my God, I need to read this. I need to underline this. I need to highlight this. I need to journal with this. So then I bought the physical book as well. And I also did her 12 Weeks to Transformation program, the last one she ever did um, with coaching. And that was from September to December. And so I was so excited when I asked her to come on the podcast because I, I got to be honest, I just wanted to share everything that I had learned from her perspective with everybody. Because the beauty of this is I joined this program because I wanted to lose the last seven to 10 pounds, right? But I also had this understanding and awareness that there were other things in my life, like getting out of debt, like starting this podcast, like just investing in myself, and having the confidence and belief in myself to do those things that I needed help with. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't crack the code of myself. So I decided to join this program. And I will say, I think it's the best thing I did for myself in 2020. And she now has that program as a self-study, which you will hear about in the podcast. So When she revealed that, I thought, oh my God, I have to have her on the podcast. I want her to talk about her story. I want her to talk about just the whole purpose and intention behind the 12 Weeks to Transformation. Because again, if I could give anything to anyone, it would be the ability to believe in yourself, the ability to get past procrastination, the ability to have tools to work through things yourself. Because Lord knows I have done every diet. I have read so many self-help books. I have done all the things. And I don't know. I'm not going to say I don't think. I know none have helped me as much as this book and this program have. So I don't 
know that there's any better <laughs> intro I can give to this. Um, but again, understand that this is different than our typical format because I asked at the very beginning what her labels were and then did not come back to that question until the last five minutes of the podcast. So, you know, I'm human. Sorry, guys, but not sorry. You are still in for such an amazing conversation that I hope you get so much from. And if you think this conversation could benefit somebody that you know, then please, by all means, share it with them. We have a couple options for you to do that. You can share it with or through the platform that you are listening to right now. But if you have someone in your life, and I always think of my parents when I say this, that do not use smartphones, all right? There are a lot of people who don't or who just do not use all the apps on smartphones. If they don't have iTunes, if they don't have Spotify, if they don't have iHeartRadio, then you can still send them a link to the website for the podcast, which is, get ready for it, breakinglabelspodcast.com. You can send them a direct link to the episode and they can listen to it that way. So they can do that on their desktop Now, they may not have a smartphone, but they probably have a desktop. So that's an option as well. So please, by all means, share it with anybody that you think could benefit from it. And if you really like this episode and have not done so already, then I hope that you subscribe to it, again, on whatever platform you prefer to listen to it. And with that, we are going to get into this awesome conversation with Elizabeth Benton. I really wanted to talk about how you've broken labels uh, in your own life and even in, on your book where it says on the cover, you know, how one, one, one broke fat girl transformed her life and how you can too. That's really what drew me into the book and then also into the 12, 12 weeks to transformation. But sure. how did it start? You know, now you're at this point, but how did it start before you wrote the book, before you knew how to change your own mindset and to, to switch how you thought about things, your perspective? It started with the struggle. It it started with decades of really wanting my life to be different, really wanting myself to be different, wanting my choices to be different and feeling tremendously frustrated with the fact that I could want change so intensely. And I, I would have told you, and even looking back would still stand by this, that I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to change my life. I wanted to change myself more than I wanted anything else. And yet, despite that intense desire, I was making choices that were completely not aligned with that. And it really, it frustrated me. It undermined my belief in myself. And that, that was the start of it. It all stemmed from this deep longing and this even greater frustration. Mm-hmm. Was there one particular incident that set you off that you're like, this is it. This is, this is the breaking point. No. And you know, I'm sure there are unicorns out there that have like one pivotal (laughs) moment that changes their life. But from my experience and, and the thousands of clients that I've worked with, it's an evolution, you know, as much as we would all like this moment and when is our moment going to come when everything turns around? I think that's pretty rare. And it certainly wasn't my experience. I think that's one thing that really resonated with me is, and I kept doing it even throughout the 12 weeks of transformation where I was like, what is the one thing that I need to think differently? What is the one thing I need to do that's going to change all this? And like you said, there wasn't one thing. It was a bunch of little things day in and day out that I had to keep being aware of. 
yeah. that I guess for a long time, I just never had been. I, I don't know what the term is if I wasn't connected to it or, or maybe just not aware of my own thoughts, but what were, what were some of your driving thoughts that you, you first set out to change? I was always very focused on the big picture. Mm -hmm. I wanted to lose over a hundred pounds and I would establish these very elaborate plans for change. Like this is the way that I'm going to eat. And it wasn't, I mean, sure. Sometimes it was a diet that I was going to follow, but sometimes it was more of a declaration. I'm going to eat this way. I'm going to exercise this way. And it was this big grand plan. And research has shown that we get the same dopamine hit from planning that we do from actually, actually executing. And so I think I was just always patting myself on the back and giving myself credit. Like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying because I was planning so much, Mm -hmm. but I was so invested in the strategy and the, well, if I do this and I lose two and a half pounds a week, or heck, I bet I could lose three pounds a week. Then by this many months from now, I'll be down this much weight. And that was not effective at all. I really enjoyed gearing up for a new plan, like giving myself that mental pep talk. And this time it's going to be different. And I'm totally a changed person. I'm committed to this no matter what it takes. And I'm so excited about the results I'm going to create. And inevitably over thousands of times in this cycle, an hour later, a day later, a week later, maybe generously a month later, I was just living the way I had been living and not creating the results and not sticking to this elaborate plan that I had created. So one of my big focuses for change was I'm just focused on today. Mm. What is the improvement that I'm going to make today? And I had to work hard to ditch this obsession with the grand plan that satisfied my the level of my desire, because my desire was so intense that I felt like it could only be matched by this big plan. And that this focus on today wasn't big enough. It wasn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't substantial. It wasn't going to create the change. And I had to put that aside because what was more true is that I could do something for today. And then that was the shift, even though I didn't recognize it at the time, it was the shift that took me out of planning mode and into action, into imperfect action, into no longer being like, well, you know, I had a bagel this morning, so screw it. I blew it. I'll start again tomorrow. No, I'm only interested in now, this hour. What is the way that I can win the afternoon? How can I win this span of time between dinner and bedtime? And that it's something that has now translated into my marriage. It's translated into my finances, into my career, into everything that I do. And and that was a huge shift for me. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about applying that to, to finances and career as well? Because I will say that was probably, not probably, that was the deciding factor on why I decided to do the 12 Weeks of Transformation is you had on your podcast, Primal Potential, you had somebody who had gone through the transformation and she talked about how it helped her get out of debt or pay off mm-hmm. X amount of dollars in debt. And it hadn't even yeah. occurred to me that the same mindset I was using for dieting and trying to get to my goal weight could also be what was keeping me in debt and not paying off something that I so badly wanted to get from under. Yeah. So the same way that we think about food, I'll start tomorrow, you know, the big picture plan, it gets in the way in other things too. When I think about writing a book, 
it's easy to be like, okay, this month I'm going to perfect an outline. And then the next month I'm going to work through drafts of the next three chapters. And, and then because it's this big long-term plan, it's easy to be like, oh, I can start on that tomorrow. Uh, I can start on that on Monday. I've got these other things that have taken priority. But when I started saying today, I'm writing today, I'm just going to write for 30 minutes today. I can write for 30 minutes today. I can write for 10 minutes today. I can edit three pages it makes it more action-based, less planning-based, and it allows for imperfection. And the same thing is true in business. I used to get caught up in the planning of, I'm going to do these launches and they're going to make this much money. And by the end of the year, I'm going to be here and my social media following will be this and my podcast downloads will be that. And it feels very satisfying to get caught up it's it's dreaming. It's it's mm-hmm. dreaming with a little less hype, maybe. It's a little bit more strategic dreaming, but it's totally different from what it takes to say, what's one way I can connect in a powerful way on social media today? What is one thing that I can do to bring in one new customer today? And it removes all of the fluff. It removes this shooting for perfection and it anchors you in imperfect, small action that when done day after day, moment after moment, it creates something really substantial, far more substantial than that big picture amorphous plan that's really hard to implement on the daily ever would. Do you think there's ever almost a part of us that would, and I guess you've already answered this, but there's so much comfort in this big, huge undertaking of a plan, because if you never do it, then you're safe. Like safe from what? Safe from failure. But are right? you? Because well, if you create the plan and you never do it, are you safe from failure? You're not. But I just wonder if at times, and I, I guess this is, I'm asking for my own benefit of wondering if that's kind of what stopped me in the past. Is it, it was easier to make an excuse for why I hadn't done things that I wanted to do for myself if it was this huge undertaking. But if it's just small things that I do day in and day out, then I at some point have to look at myself and say, okay, it's not this ginormous plan that's daunting isn't the problem. It's the fact that I'm not willing to make small incremental changes day in and day out. And I think that comes down to how honest are you being with yourself? Because I remember my sister she's a couple of years older than me. Um, she did her undergrad schooling out of state and then she got her master's degree out of state and she's a social worker. So she graduated with her master's with a ton of debt in a very, very low paying job. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, having a ton of student loan debt and not making a lot of money. She also wasn't great with her personal finances outside of her, her debt. And for years, Her story was, I can't get out of debt because I don't make enough. Like my debt is too substantial and I don't make enough to ever get ahead. And I don't think that's a matter of trying to protect herself from failure if she were to try. I think it's a matter of she was not being honest with herself Mm -hmm. about the process, about her capability, about all of the options. She was locked into one story of limitation And that is not a false story. It's just not the full story. And when she stepped into, well, there is a small improvement that I could take, make today. She would say things like, well, 
the fact that I spend $30 on random stuff at Target doesn't matter because it's not going to move the needle of this $100,000 worth of debt. Well, actually it is. Mm -hmm. Right. It it actually is maybe not in this grand way as if you were to get a $50,000 pay raise, but it is going to move the needle both ways. If you, if you don't spend that $30 and you put it towards your debt, it's going to move the needle small, but it's going to move the needle. Similarly, if you keep justifying that $30 at target, because in the scheme of a hundred thousand dollars, it's not a big deal. You're adding more debt slowly. And whether that happens once a week or it happens once a month, or it's the concert tickets here or there, it does make a difference. And she had to get to the point where she wasn't going to focus on this one convenient piece of the truth that made her feel better about her inaction. It wasn't Mm -hmm. so much a fear of failure. It was a failure to be totally honest with herself. Mm -hmm. How, I don't even know how to ask this question, but what is kind of the litmus test for whether or not somebody's being a hundred percent honest with themselves in your experience after years of coaching, what are, are there certain like tendencies or common things people say if they're not being honest with themselves? I think the most obvious thing is that they're locked in on only one, one perspective, one view. I can't because I don't have time. Uh, it won't work because it never has before. Mm-hmm. And if you are only seeing one perspective, it's too hard. I can't. I'm too old. It's my metabolism. There's so much more that is also true. And maybe it's not the truth you want to acknowledge. Maybe it's not the truth that you've really thought about. But for me, when somebody is just locked in on one perspective, that is the obvious tell that Mm -hmm. they're not being totally honest. It doesn't mean they're aware that they are not being totally honest. I don't think most of us set out with the intention to like defraud ourselves or be dishonest. It's just that we haven't allowed for the whole truth. And I always tell people this example of like, if you came into my office And I had my husband in the office too. And I had you stand in the front right corner and he stood in the back left corner. And I said to each of you, what color is the wall, right? You would tell me it's blue. He would tell me it's white. The fact is you're both right and you're both wrong because there's one wall that's blue and there's one wall that's white. You just only see what you're looking at. That doesn't mean that's all that there is. And there's this great children's book I think it's called Zoom. And essentially, every time you turn the page, the picture zooms out. So on the first page, it looks like you're looking at this kind of like a red triangle, right? And if you were to talk to somebody, you'd be like, no, it's a red triangle. There's no question about it. But you you turn the page and it's zoomed out. It's actually a rooster's comb, right? And then you turn the page again, and it's actually not even a a picture of a rooster, it's a picture of a farmhouse, right? And there's a rooster in the picture of the farmhouse. But the fact is you're you're really looking at a farmhouse with lots of animals, not just a rooster. Then you turn the page, you don't even see the rooster anymore because it's zoomed out so much that what you see is this cityscape and you can kind of see the little farmhouse. And I give that example because when we get locked in on one perspective, it's like we're zoomed in on a piece of a picture and we're so sure that what we see is this thing, but it's actually a part of this larger thing. We just haven't demanded of ourselves. We haven't gotten in the practice of zooming out to see everything. Mm. 
I remember one time I asked you um, on one of the the small group calls, uh, you know, what are the things that you've noticed like make somebody more likely to succeed versus not? And you said not getting caught up in the drama. And I thought, okay, all right, I get that. And then fast forward a few weeks, maybe four or five weeks, I asked you a question and I gave you all this context for what I was going through. And you very politely, (laughs) but firmly said, I don't need the context. That's Mm -hmm. the drama. Yeah. And I, I never, ever made the connection of the backstory that I felt the need to give for every situation was just feeding into the drama. It, Hmm? It makes you feel justified in wherever you are or whatever you're experiencing. And I always tell my clients, it's not that I don't care. Right. I, I was doing a, a conversation with, with a client the other day and, uh, she spent the first 10 minutes talking about her financial situation, but instead of like, I want to get out of debt, I want to make more money. She went into this, well, I used to have this job that paid really well, but then when the economy changed, this happened and I took this other lesser job because I needed something, but my boss was a total psycho and I ended up moving on to this (laughs) next thing. And then, and then that actually turned into some other thing where I was supposed to make money, but I didn't. And I'm like, again, totally nothing to do with the solution. And I I wrote about this in Chasing Cupcakes, how when it comes to solving a problem, there are these four phases. There's sensing, seeking, settling, and solving. And sensing is how you feel about it all. You know, you're frustrated, you're, you're irritated, you're overwhelmed, you're doubting yourself. Well, that has nothing to do with solving the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And even when you are searching out all of this information, that's not the same thing as solving the problem. Mm -hmm. And I love, uh, there's an author, her name is Cy Wakeman, and she defines drama as what you add to the facts. We have to be clear that we're trying to solve a problem. So what is the solution that we're trying to get at? And then everything else is not relevant. And the reason that I spend so much time working on that with my clients is that we free up a ton of time and energy when we let go of the drama. It's not because Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's because when that is our focus, all of the extra stuff, all of the history, all of the fears and frustrations and doubts and insecurities, it zaps our energy, leaving us with very little time. And if any energy to actually solve the problem. Yes. Yes. That was pretty early on, I realized when the eating didn't, well, the weight loss didn't have to come down to this elaborate eating plan and workout plan. And it could just be these small changes and how, for me, the biggest thing was not what I was eating, but why I was eating. Like, am I eating because I'm bored? Am I eating because I'm stressed or because I'm procrastinating doing something? Those were the things that I noticed were were happening the most. But when I wasn't giving energy to that, all of a sudden, all these other things I wanted to, like starting the podcast, like pursuing other ventures, all of that was so much easier. Yeah, Like I had so much more capacity to do that. When before all I could focus, not all I could, all I did focus on was, I've got to lose this weight. I've got to figure this out. I got to do this. And then when you had talked about the sensing and seeking, I was like, oh man, I'm really good at seeking information. Not as, not as much energy has gone into actually solving the problem consistently. Absolutely. 
Do you find that a lot with clients? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. People don't pause to ask themselves, where am I right now? Where is my attention right now? Am I focused on the problem? Am I focused on the solution? What would it look like to shift from the problem to the solution? And honestly, I have to ask myself those questions every single day. Just this morning, I was texting my husband. I'm so frustrated. I'm frustrated because I ordered stuff from Pottery Barn two months ago and it's still not here. And I call customer service and they tell me that there's no date for when back order items are going to ship. And I'm frustrated because I can't get somebody to give me the referral that I need to see a doctor that I need to see. And I'm frustrated because I was supposed to have some appointment and it got canceled. And as I'm texting him that, I paused and I asked myself, am I focused on the problem here? Or am I focused on the solution? Focusing on the problem is exhausting. It zaps your energy and it's completely unproductive. And 99 times out of 100, it puts us in a bad mood, whether that's an overwhelmed mood, an angry mm -hmm. mood, an overwhelmed mood, you, you name it. And so I had to ask myself intentionally, it is a practice. It will never stop. What would it look like right now to shift out of the problem and into the solution? Even on the phone with Pottery Barn, I'm having the same exact conversation. Okay, I don't need to be right here and make the point that their customer service sucks and that they never let me know the items were on back order and that it makes no sense that they can't tell me when they'll be in. Like, I don't need to be right. I need to get it right, which mm -hmm. is the difference between being in the problem. Let me tell you that I've been transferred six times and the first guy was rude and the second three people had no information. No. The solution that I'm after is getting my stuff or getting a refund. So let me stay focused there. It's common in all of us because our ego is a very real thing. Whether you consider yourself an egocentric person or not really doesn't matter. We want to feel validated in our feelings. So if we're frustrated with the customer service person, we want that to be validated either internally or by others, and that is why we fixate on the problem. Your spouse comes home and they ask how your day was. You're irritated. You want to justify your irritation. You want to share that. That's ego. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not here to say that's bad, but mm -hmm. what it is is unproductive and totally exhausting. I have to remind myself regularly, I want to be happy and I want to be peaceful more than I want to be right, more than I want to be validated. I want to make progress and overcome obstacles more than I want to justify the problems themselves. It helps to hear you say it's a practice because, and I know that you said that throughout the book. I know that you said that throughout 12 weeks to transformation, but darn if I didn't still feel like there was going to be this moment of permanent transformation where I would never have to actively engage with those thoughts. I would never like the situation that you were talking about just now, like that I, in my mind, I just imagine that anytime a situation like that hap would happen for you, you would just automatically go to what is the solution? I'm not going to worry about the problem. Like, nope. Almost like it was this higher level of understanding, all knowing, I don't know, but I mean, it helps things that there are things that are more natural and automatic. For example, I struggled with drama around food for most of my life. Mm -hmm. Now 
there's no drama around food. If I go to get my eyelashes done later today and I get an ice cream on the way home, there is no like, oh, I said I wasn't going to do sugar today. I, I'm right on to the solution. Okay, so what do I need to do to make myself feel great? What's a choice I can make that will make me feel proud? What is something I can do to take great care of myself? You know, those things are very automatic. So it depends on where and how often you do the practice. The fact is when it comes to something like an irritation with customer service, that might come up for me twice a month. So mm-hmm. it takes more work and more effort. Whereas with food, I was working through that stuff six times a day for years. And so the progress is more high level. And that doesn't mean that, for example, in my, my pregnancy last year, there are definitely times where I'm like, gosh, am I going to get back to that level of discipline? But there's still no drama. It kind of depends on the degree of the thing. If I have an ice cream, no big deal. If I go nine months indulging more regularly, sure, there's that thought of like, I would probably feel so much better if I hadn't done that. But then I get quickly to the solution. For things that are less frequent, there's going to be a slower transition to progress. And then there's going to be new things all the time, right? Renovating my house. I had never done that before. That was a very new thing. That was something where I had to work to become a better thinker constantly. Marriage, it's something I have practice with 20 times a day. So the progress is faster because I practice more often. So I think we never arrive at the point where like, I'm an enlightened thinker and nothing is a struggle. I mean, I don't think that is something that happens to the average bear, but for where you put in more practice, you're going to see a greater degree of improvement and effortlessness. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing you had said, actually, apparently you said it in the book. I don't remember it in the book, but I do remember when you talked about it on um, Brooke Thomas's podcast, Live Out Loud, and she was asking you about different things. And you mentioned the smoke versus the fire. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you, entire you chapter. Yeah. Well, funny enough, I love the book. I don't remember it in the book, but when I was on my walk listening to that podcast, it was like this light bulb moment. I was like, oh, my God, how did I miss that? in this entire book that I journaled through. <laughs> I don't even understand how that happens, but do you have that happen a lot with clients where like one thing they read it the first time they're like, ah, and then later it, it ends up, I guess, clicking more or resonating. Oh, totally. more? I mean, they say that you have to hear something. I mean, it depends on what research you look at, but we'll call it an average of eight times before it really resonates with you you know, and that can be somebody's name. Like now I've got it because they've introduced themselves eight times. Um, But it's the same thing with information and it's different person to person, right? We all have different Mm -hmm. learning styles. We all have done different degrees of work on, on retaining things. And so for some person, you might hear a name the first time and remember it, but average of eight. So It also depends on, we have to realize that when we're reading a book or we're listening to a podcast, there's also other things going on in our life or in our day. For me, if I'm listening to an audio book while I'm driving, Mm -hmm. I might take in 10%, right? The research tells us that we absorb about 30% of the information that we hear. So, I mean, if you you absorbed 30% of Chasing Cupcakes, there's 70% you didn't. And that number only goes down when 
we're distracted or when we're, you know, task switching a lot. So I know for me, I re-listen to books constantly because real, I don't think I hit that 30% mark because somebody sent me a text message because Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a siren behind me and I had to pull over or something like that. So we can't have this expectation that we hear it once and it's ours. It doesn't work that way at all. Not only do we need it to be in our memory, which can take repeat exposure, but beyond that, we need practice to make it our own. I always refer to this graveyard of good ideas, whether it's something you heard in a podcast or you read in a book or you saw on social media. If you didn't do anything with it, if you didn't turn it into a practice, you had that moment of like, oh, I like that. That's good. And then it went to the idea graveyard to die because you didn't do anything with it. And fortunately, that's not a fixed thing. We can, we can make improvements. That's why I take copious notes and I'm always going back through them and saying, okay, this idea that I loved, can I implement it in some way today? Can I practice it in some way today? It's also why I try to limit inputs. I try to not constantly be scrolling through social media because at some point you're taking in more than you can use. Mm -hmm. And I, this is so practical in business too. I heard somebody refer to this once as like, is this just in time information or do I not need it now? Where a lot of people in business, in career, in finance, they, they get obsessed with consuming new information, but it's far more than they can implement. And so yes. I got really good and disciplined in business at being like, I don't need to know the next Facebook ad strategy right now because I'm not doing Facebook ads this week right? So I don't need to listen to a podcast on this because my focus is writing a book right now. I'm not getting into information on new strategies for text message marketing or email marketing or anything like that because it's not what I need right now. When I need the information, I'll go get it. And that's the whole just-in-time thing. If I'm going to go write a really important email, that's when I'm going to go and look up about subject lines and open rates and different strategies for stuff like that. But people waste so much time consuming information that they're not ready to implement. Don't read that book on nutrition if you're not going to get serious this week about implementing it. If you've got 30 things on your plate, then let that one rest until you're ready to do something with it. Now, what would you suggest? Okay, if somebody is not ready to take in that book on nutrition, but they do want to be healthier, what are like some small things they could do that day? Totally depends on them, right? I would have them ask themselves, what's an improvement I'm able and willing to make today? How can I make today a little bit better than yesterday? For somebody that might be I don't need to stop and get this candy bar right now. Mm -hmm. For somebody else, it might be, I'm going to incorporate vegetables at every meal. For somebody else, it might be, I'm only going to eat when I'm hungry or I'm going to write down everything I eat, but it's respective to you and where you're at. When I first started, it was, I'm not going to order two breakfast entrees at Chick-fil-A. I'm going to order one. I didn't say I'm going to start eating egg whites and broccoli for breakfast. (laughs) It was when I go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, instead of getting chicken biscuit and chicken minis, I'm going to get one or the other. What would you say to somebody who says, well, that's not enough. I'm not going to lose weight fast enough if that's all I do. Okay. I believe that too. That's where I started out. (laughs) One of the biggest things that I, I wouldn't argue with that person right? because you can convince yourself of that. That's fine. 
I know that to not be true from my own experience, but I also told myself that kind of crap for 30 years. And it's why I continue to struggle with my weight. Mm -hmm. I would rather be consistent with incremental small improvements that move the needle, than go back and forth between all in super strict and totally off the rails. I just talked about this on a podcast the other day, how it's, it's obviously not this black and white and this simple, but for the sake of demonstration and example, if we call the quote, perfect meal for fat loss, a 10, right. Mm -hmm. There is no perfect meal for fat loss. That's not even a thing. And then we call like total garbage, fast food, junk processed, whatever we call it a zero. I would rather consistently eat at a seven Mm -hmm. than go back and forth between a 10 and a zero and have my average be a four. Oh, you know, and I, and I, I just went into that on a, on a recent podcast because where I screwed up for so long was if it wasn't a 10, I sucked and I'd eat a zero or one or a two or a three. And I was always going for that nine, 10, but it wasn't delicious. I didn't look forward to it. I was constantly craving the zero, the one, the two. Now I'm like, Hey, look, I'm going to have the goat cheese. I'm going to have the bacon. I'm going to have the this, the that, whatever it is. I'm going to have the freaking cauliflower pizza, which before would be like, oh no, there's flour in that crust. Come on. that That's just for me. I'm going to reach my goals steadily and stay mm-hmm. consistent. My weekends don't look different from my weekdays. My nights don't look different from my mornings. I had to break that pattern of pursuing perfection and then being like, screw it, I blew it when I wasn't being perfect. I don't want to be perfect. I don't think perfect exists. Even if it did exist, it sounds super boring. So I'm not into it. The the weekend one. Oh my God. It, can you say anything else about that or the person who is doing the 10 during the week and is like a zero, maybe a three on a good day during the weekends? Like how do you, is it again, just every Friday when that switch would normally go off and you want to jump to, to zero? how is it just what can I do a little bit better this Friday, this Saturday? I think it depends. Like, is that working for you? Mm. I'm not here to say that there aren't people in the world who love how they feel and are reaching their goals, eating a 10 Monday through Friday and a zero Saturday, Sunday. That wasn't me. That wasn't my experience. It didn't work for me. I didn't like the way I felt when I wasn't eating well. And again, these numbers aren't real. They don't exist. That's not how food works, but the the concept, right? All in and then all off. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it depends. Like I talk to a lot of people who really don't like their weekend habits and they feel out of control and they feel sluggish. And then Monday comes around and they feel like they've, you know, undone the work they did the week before. In that case, what do you want it to look like? You know, I didn't ever consider that for the longest time. And I think that screwed me up when I was striving for asparagus and salmon or, you know, white fish and broccoli. I never thought about how do I want to eat for the rest of my life? And, and now knowing that I want to indulge occasionally in mm-hmm. a way that still makes me feel good. Indulging occasionally for me does not mean I have one day a week or one day a month where I eat a whole pizza and a pint of ice cream and a brownie sundae or whatever else, because I would feel like crap. That's just me. The way I want to eat 
is looking forward to each one of my meals every day, truly Mm -hmm. enjoying them. And also feeling good physically, feeling good mentally, feeling good psychologically, and being able to be comfortable in my own skin. It also means every once in a while, having a spicy margarita, Mm -hmm. having a plate of pancakes, or having a cupcake. Now, every once in a while takes on different definitions at different points in my life. But the key is I do it in a way that I still feel good, that I don't feel groggy, that I don't feel puffy, right? That might be one piece of pizza and a salad instead of a whole pizza and a pint of ice cream. It might be splitting a cupcake with my husband instead of being like, today's the day, let's go by six and house them all on the drive home. That, um, could you speak a little bit about the, um, the analogy, the smoke versus fire? Um, just cause I just realized I never gave context to that, but can you talk a little bit about solving or I guess addressing smoke versus fire? Yeah. So, and I'll first say there's an entire chapter on it in chasing cupcakes. So if you're like totally lost or confused, that's a great place to go. Um, or if it intrigues you, as I explain it, there's, there's, I think, I think it's actually like the title of one of the chapters. Um, so what I noticed in myself for many years, when I wanted change, wanted weight loss, wanted to be healthier and wasn't doing it was that I was focused more on what I call the smoke than the fire. And if you think about it in terms of, let's say you light your toaster on fire, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're in the kitchen and you're, you're thinking to yourself, gosh, where's that smoke coming from? And you're, the smoke detectors go off and you grab a dish towel and you're, you're fanning it so that, that it goes off and you're opening the windows you're going to temporarily dissipate the smoke. But if you never address the fact that the toaster's on fire, the smoke is going to continue to accumulate and you're going to exhaust yourself because your work never ends. Mm -hmm. We have to identify the fire and address the fire instead of perpetually addressing the smoke. For me, what that looked like was I was chasing the smoke of what I was eating and how much I was eating but the fire was how I was thinking about food and about myself, just how I was making decisions, my thought process. That's really what was broken. The problem is because I didn't know that I was here chasing around like, oh my gosh, I can't eat this much sugar and I need to stop binging at night and I need to eat out less frequently, but the work never ended Mm. because I wasn't going after the real issue. I thought for sure that the real issue was my food choices, but it was actually my food choices were a result of something else. But you see the food issue. You see the food choices. You see the binging. You see that just like you see the smoke and you smell the smoke. But more often than not, whether it's spending, whether it's depression, the symptom is what we respond to and what we tire ourselves out dealing with because we haven't stepped back enough to say, what is this coming from? And I am not here. I'm not one of those people to be like, your food issues are stemming from this deep-seated childhood crap. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. It's typically something like the way you're making decisions, the way you're thinking about things. And I've got my whole, my own whole backstory of childhood issues, none of which are relevant to how I was thinking about food. 
I mean, sure, they factored into how I learned to think that way, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have to like unpack 30 years worth of crap to make changes there. So that's not what I mean. But fundamentally, we have to differentiate between the smoke and the fire. Otherwise, this is what happens when people are always hopping from one diet to the next, or they get out of debt and then they reaccumulate it, or Mm -hmm. they have these big business aspirations, but they never follow through because they're focused on the smoke and not the fire. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you brought up the childhood part because that seems to be something that I know I have. And then in talking with friends who, who struggled with food, kind of harken back to, well, this is what I saw. And like, how do you reconcile acknowledging that that might've had an impact on, like you said, you know, how you, you thought about food growing up, but kind of disassociating it or cutting the tie to it and just focusing on the solution. Like, what would be, I guess, a a way for somebody to do that? Or what would be your recommendation? Well, first say that I am not a psychiatrist, a psychologist. I'm not qualified in any way to help people unpack or work through any kind of past issues. That is not what I do. What was helpful to me, because I have a very sordid history with food and family and all of those kinds of things, uh, that certainly was the origin of my struggle with food. What I remind myself is no matter what happened, whether related to food, related to money, related to love, related to sex or romance or anything else, it doesn't limit what I'm capable of choosing today. Mm. So I don't care if, you know, I was told I was fat and stupid and ugly every single day for the first 30 years of my life, just using that as a random example, I wasn't, um, I'm still free to make any choice I want to make today. Mm-hmm. So my past has shaped the things that I've done leading up until now, but it doesn't limit what I'm capable of doing. So if I want to work with a therapist on like processing all of that past stuff, that's fine. Go do that. I, you know, therapy has its place, um, but it doesn't limit the choices that are available to you now. It doesn't prevent you from being a different version of yourself today. And that has just always freed me to not be in any way imprisoned by the things that have happened, the things that have shaped me. I'm still totally capable of making a different choice today. That, well, one, it's the drama, like we talked about earlier, but then also that, that when you say prison, it made me think of that roomy quote that you, you use. Um, Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Yes. That one, every time I've heard you say it, or when I read it in the book, it was just like, I don't know. Why do I, why do I, but there's so much, mm, how do I say, um, not free, I guess freedom, but it, it's empowering. Because as much as it can be so frustrating to feel like you are in prison, it's really pretty great to realize well, I, I'm the one that can walk out of it. Like mm-hmm. I can get myself out of this situation. I don't have to rely on somebody else to do that. Yeah. What would, um, well, actually context. I, one of the things that I, I really appreciate when I listen to your podcast and just hearing your story and different things that you go through in your life um, is that you seem to be very good um, at setting boundaries about what is okay or what's not okay with you in the moment. And that really resonated with me because I've, I've kind of caught myself a lot of times 
getting very upset, upset or feeling offended that somebody crossed a boundary that I never explicitly said was there. Mm-hmm. In my mind, there was a boundary. And when they crossed it, I felt some kind of a way, but I never actually said, Hey, I need, I want this, or I do yeah. not want this. Yeah. It, do you run into that a lot in your clients, whether it's with eating or career or debt, like that setting boundaries impacts any of that? I, un- I encounter a lot of people who think that it does. Oh, okay. So I'm all about boundaries for sure. But whether you have boundaries, or you don't have boundaries, whether you enforce boundaries or you don't enforce boundaries, you're still free to make whatever food choices you want to make, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think that having or establishing boundaries is in any way truly limiting in terms of nutrition and food choice. Boundaries certainly impact a whole lot of other things. And what I encounter most is people who assume that others do or should think and see things the way that they do. Mm-hmm. And maybe they haven't thought about it that way. Maybe they have. But if you are offended by something that somebody did, that does not mean that the person who did it either meant offense or thinks that what they did is offensive. We need to allow people to have their own perspectives. That doesn't mean people can and should do whatever they say and treat you however. I remember when I was first dating my husband, we were driving up to, um, we have a family home up in Maine, which is where my dad is buried. And he had never been there. We'd only been dating a few months. And uh, we were talking about my dad and his death and his burial. And and my, my husband, who was then my boyfriend, made a joke about, I don't even remember either my dad's death or my dad's burial or something like that. And I, I kind of looked at him and I was like, damn, that, that kind of crossed a line, but it was a line for me. And for him, he just has very different, uh, a very different approach to loss and to death. And he's always going to be one to make a joke, especially when it's a difficult conversation. That's his coping. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean though, that, he can make jokes to me about a situation that is that is mine and not his. But I had to explain that. Like, look, I get, I totally understand that you and sometimes me and lots of people use humor to diffuse sad moments or tough moments or whatever. But like when you're talking about my dad, please don't do that. Mm. Where a lot of people process these kinds of things is they just get mad and they just get offended. And I can't believe somebody would say that. I believe very readily that somebody would say that because how I operate, how I think, how I behave is not the way that I assume somebody else thinks or operates or behaves. My standards are only mine. They're Mm -hmm. not anybody else's. And that frees me from just a lot of anger and hurt feelings. So I do talk to my clients a lot about allowing people to have other perspectives communicating how you perceive something and opening yourself up to how somebody else might perceive it, leaving room for people to think and process and operate differently than you do, not putting your standards on other people. Those kinds of things are are huge, but I don't think they necessarily come up regularly as valid reasons for like why people can't change their eating habits. Mm-hmm. I, I, Yeah. Agreed. I definitely found myself, um, one of the, towards the end of the challenge or 
towards the end of the, um, the 12 weeks, um, we were given, you know, was it don't do something or I forget what the, the what it was called, but long story short, cause I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it, but I decided to give up drinking for a week, but I didn't communicate that to my significant other. So mm-hmm. Friday night rolls around and he goes and gets food and brings it back and was as thoughtful as he usually is. And he got us little to go drinks. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment of crap, like now I'm going to have to say yes, because I don't want him to feel bad. And then I was like, or you could know that he's not really going to care that much. And he's going to understand if you tell him what you're doing. And sure enough, I explained it. And he was like, oh, okay. And that was the end of it. Right. (laughs) But there was that moment where I started to go down this rabbit hole of, oh, no, is he going to be offended? Blah, blah, blah. But you hit the nail on the head at the end of the day. I mean, that that's on me. That's really not on him. 100%. I mean, in, in, in my pregnancy, I'm pregnant now. I was pregnant last year and my husband, a hundred percent of the time, if I say like, oh, I'm really craving ice cream, he'll be like, I'll go get it for you. Or, uh, you know, sweet potato fries would be so good. Well, want me to order some? Like that's very much his, his MO. And there have been moments where I'm like, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to make it so easy for me to do those things. I'm not saying go get it or or worse yet. He'll just, I'll say like, oh, I'd love some ice cream. And the next night he'll come home from work with a pint of ice cream. And then I'm like, why, you know, I don't want you to do that. But I had to say what is more helpful is if instead of being sweet and thoughtful and bringing home the ice cream, just ask, do you want me to bring some home tomorrow? Mm. Or if we have a conversation about, standards. So in pregnancy, it's been so helpful to be like, you know what, I'm going to indulge once a week, but him knowing that like, Hey, well, we just had brownies last night. So, you know, ice cream for next week, for sure. It requires communication. Expecting somebody to be on your page is a really miserable way to live. Because inevitably they're, they're not going to be because they're not in your head. Mm -hmm. They don't have your experiences. Yeah. What, what made you decide to do the 12 weeks as a self-study? A bunch of things. Uh, The first one, initially it wasn't going to be a self-study. It was just going to go away. And the reason for that was threefold. Uh, One being I had been doing it for over five years and I was ready for a break. Like I was ready for something different. I was ready. It takes up a lot of time and energy and I wanted time and energy to do different things. That was number one. Five years, like I, and personally and emotionally, I was just ready for the next thing. Um, the second thing was my daughter passed away in March of 2020 and I did two 12 weeks to transformations after that. And as I was going through them, I was thinking I would rather have given myself a break. And I felt for the longest time that I couldn't. Financially, that wouldn't make sense because it's a big part of Primal Potential's revenue and it does really well and people really love it and I would upset everybody. And then I had to ask myself, what is best for for me? What, what is possible? What, what are some ways that I could get creative about making this a hell yes, making this a win? And I started to consider other, other options. The other thing was I'm currently writing my second book and it's really challenging to 
to juggle all of that at once and something needed to give. And I didn't want to give up the podcast. So Mm-hmm. That was that. So those are the reasons that I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is it for the 12 weeks and we'll, we'll bring out some new and fresh stuff. And I had a lot of people reach out, either people who have been through it before or people who hadn't yet, who were trying to save up the money to do it, who said, can we just purchase the challenges and the daily coaching audios? Like all, not, not asking you to, to bring it back or do anything differently, but since it's all created and all of those things exist and you have the identity journal and those kinds of things, can we just purchase that? And I was like, absolutely. It would be kind of crazy for me not to do that because it's been so effective because it's been so powerful for so many people. So I was like, well, what would make me feel good about making that available without me being in a Facebook group seven days a week, without me going live once a week, without me getting hundreds of emails every single week that take hours to respond to. And so we cut the price by 68%. And that just seemed like a really good win-win. Mm-hmm. What if somebody is listening to this and they've, they've never listened to your podcast. They haven't read chasing cupcakes yet, which they should. Um, what would they experience or what would they expect? Could they expect with the 12 week self-study? It totally depends on what their goals are. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. even tell somebody like, Hey, go do it. Unless I knew that they were somebody who was looking to make a change in their life. Cause not everybody is like, there are a lot mm-hmm. of people that listen to podcasts that just want to kind of get a good energy in their day, but they're, they're not, they're not looking to change something in their lives right now. Mm-hmm. If somebody were listening and they were like, oh, I've been kind of going back and forth with either this weight or getting out of debt or anything like that, I would say it's going to give you the framework for becoming a better thinker. Cause what happens a lot is we hear a ton of good ideas and strategies, but then we fail to implement them. And, and like I was saying at the start of, of this episode, I noticed in myself when I was struggling that I had very high motivation and very high desire and very poor follow through. And that was frustrating. And in order to no longer create the same excuses and exceptions and doubts and delays, I really had to change the way I thought. But mm-hmm. The whole notion of changing the way you think is, is kind of like trying to pin a wave on the sand, right? Like how, I don't understand what that means. And so that is what the 12 weeks is all about. It is a, a structure for becoming a better thinker so that the excuses and the doubts and the delays and the fears that have held you back before don't hold you back anymore. So then, I mean, really anybody who, if, if the change that they're looking for or the transformation, I should say the transformation is weight loss, or it might be pivoting in their career or mm-hmm. having a better career or getting out of debt. Any of that would apply for the, the program. Totally. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'm going to include a link in the show notes as to, I think it's um, register primal potential slash yep. register, right? Yep. Primalpotential.com forward slash register. Yep. Yes. This is a question I have wondered, and I'm so excited that I get to ask you this. Where did the name Primal Potential come from? I wish I had a really great story for that. And I don't, I (laughs) I knew I was going to start a business and I didn't know what to call it. And I was brainstorming and brainstorming. And I really love the word potential and and all that it represents of who we can be, regardless Mm -hmm. of who we have been and and all that we are capable of doing. And at the time I was very much, um, 
and I still am more or less, I'm a lot more flexible than I was, but I was following more of like a primal way of eating. And I just like what that represents in terms of, um, just purity and quality. And I think that extends far beyond food. So that's kind of the best, that's the best example. That's the best summary I could give of kind of where that came from. I like it. It doesn't have to be this crazy story. I mean, it makes sense. And I, it, I always liked it. I just always wondered where did it come from? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the podcast and to share. Um, I guess we never actually got into what exactly labels it was that you, you had felt burdened by or, or, um, confined by, but were there ever any ones that you, you did? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm an emotional eater. I'm really great at losing weight, terrible at keeping it off. Um, I, you know, I'm really good at making a plan and terrible at sticking through it. I don't follow through. I can be really great for a few days and then I fall off the wagon, all of those kinds of things. What do you call yourself now? Say that again. How do you think of yourself now? Um, I would say the biggest thing is just capable of figuring things out. Hmm. No, um, creative, energetic problem solver. I think that any choice that I make doesn't define who I am because in the next moment I'm, I'm not limited. Um, so I, I think that I just have a, a high degree of confidence in my ability to figure things out. Mm-hmm. I have to thank you for the, the term creative energetic problem solver, because I have journaled it daily and there've been so many moments, especially I, I recently made a career change and there've been so many days where the only thing I could get myself out of my funk or like my fear mode was I am a creative and energetic problem solver. <laughs> and just saying it over and over to myself until I started to believe it. And until an idea came to my mind. I love that. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for this conversation. It's been fun. Yay. I hope that you got a lot out of that conversation with Elizabeth Benton. I know I did, even though I already read her book and went through the entire 12 weeks to transformation. So, I mean, you already got the gist of it, but I could not encourage you enough to take advantage of her self-study. And just so you know, I went back to the book, Chasing Cupcakes, and I looked all through it. And the smoke versus fire reference is actually from chapter eight. And here's the really funny part. I actually underlined (laughs) a part from that chapter or from that section. And it says, I will quote you. When it comes to your goals, the smoke could be from overeating, excessive drinking, spending, gossiping, or complaining. The smoke is coming from the fire. So I underlined it and still forgot about it. So I couldn't, encourage you enough to read Chasing Cupcakes. Check out her Instagram, Primal Potential, Elizabeth Benton. Goodness gracious, can I speak? And also her podcast, Primal Potential. Because hey, guess what? There are a lot of amazing podcasts out there. And I am such an advocate for you taking advantage of any free resource that's available for you. So go check out her podcast. If you liked this episode, then please, by all means, share it with somebody that you think would also enjoy it. You can share it on the platform you're listening to it right now. Or if you're sharing it with somebody who does not use iTunes or iHeartRadio or Spotify, then you can direct them to our website, 
breakinglabelspodcast.com. Until next time, have a great week.